0: Fellow tennis nerds, I'm here with a guy I'm sure you've seen uh, on YouTube. He's one of the the old-schoolers, the old-timers. He's been coaching (laughs) tennis for a long time, been around on YouTube for a very long time, uh, does great videos. He also has Real Tennis, which is a channel with actual competitive matches, which I think you should watch. And he's also written a book called Essential Tennis, uh, which is doing well on Amazon and and everywhere else, pretty much. So welcome to the podcast, Ian.
1: Thanks, Jonas. I love uh, talking tennis. I love especially having conversations with content creators it's a very small group of people that's that's doing it full-time ish and like really trying to do a good job really appreciate your content a lot you're doing a fantastic job so i'm looking forward to our talk a lot yeah me too I, i always
0: love talking to content creators in general because we face similar challenges everyone even though i mean you've been doing it for a long time i've been doing it for a it's getting better like slowly slowly but it, it's been a process of learning you know everything and it's fun when you're out in these um these tennis tournaments and events you meet a lot of different creators of, of uh you know from tennis and and we all seem to share the love for the sport but then trying to figure out our own way in it you know it's it's uh, it's not that easy so you've been doing this for a while uh, what are like the the changes you've noticed in the last maybe five years or so like how it has it has changed your life your career and and what's been the like journey for you on youtube
1: Um, man, so just keep it. Yeah, I've been doing it for 14 years now. I've been uploading videos to YouTube. So so a ton has changed. Uh, In the early days, it was it was just a ghost town. And anything you uploaded, people would watch. Because just the novelty, you know, in 2009 2010, just the fact that there was tennis content, you would get lots of views just because you were trying. It didn't have to be good. It didn't have to be well produced. It didn't have to be very engaging just the fact that you uploaded anything, you would get views because you were the only one doing it. So I would say around probably, around that mark, probably about five years ago, stuff started getting real in terms of, there were always a couple of us You know, over the years. You know, Will Hamilton started a little bit before I did. Uh, he's been a really big friend and mentor for me over the years. Um, and before us, there were even websites, uh, tennis one, which is now, I, I think not on the internet anymore was before us. Um, uh, who's, uh, uh, what's his name? There's another one as well. Uh, there's a couple of websites that were publishing videos before us, but it was all old school walled garden. Like you had to put in your credit card uh, number in order to see any of the videos. So Will was the first one to be like, I'm just going to post stuff for free. And then I started six months after him. And it wasn't until probably about 2016, 17, that a significant cohort of other coaches started jumping in and doing the freemium you know, kind of model where you publish as much valuable stuff as you can for free, build an audience, and then monetize that audience. And now, post-COVID, I think it's reached a saturation point now, and the results per Unit of effort have definitely declined uh, over the last probably two or three years, pretty significantly, I would say. And I think it's just due to a lot of people competing now for the same set of eyeballs all around the world. And this is the way it's supposed to be. Like it's it's open, it's uh, democratized, um, it's free, and so people are finally starting to see the opportunity. Frankly, it's harder for me, and the business model is more and more challenging, but for the sport and for the game i'm very happy and excited because it's what tennis deserves and tennis in general has always lagged behind in terms of technology adoption and media and stuff like that and so i'm happy that it's late but at least it's starting to be like a real thing what you and i are doing right now i've been put in like the racket space
0: uh, for a while right so it's like i i've noticed that you know, more and more reviewers of rackets, even in that very small segment that I'm kind of trying to get out of a little bit. Uh, because I think tennis is uh, its something I love in a much bigger way than just talking about gear, although it's been kind of a, a thing for me. Um, and I see even there, there's like a loads of reviews of every racket. You know, people see that that gets results, I guess. Uh, you know, so so it's, it's what's happening. But you also made an interesting video recently that I watched, which is about... Why people not improve by just watching a lot of YouTube videos, which I thought was a very (laughs) apt point you had there. Uh, Can you talk a little bit what happened, what went behind the scenes of you creating that video?
1: Yeah, I mean the narrative that I I tried to convey is was the real impetus for the video, and that is I work with students in person on a regular basis. Those students are never local. I live in a in a non tennis. Community. I mean, there's tennis here, but it's not a normal part of the culture. There's not really many tennis fans in my area. So the people that work with me almost always travel from out of state, sometimes out of country. And so it's generally my first time meeting them, unless it's a repeat student. And these people have spent years and years consuming everything that I create, along with tons of other pieces of content from other coaches that are doing a fantastic job and providing really valuable resources. And yet I notice a pattern of student after student after student after student student all needing the same things, even though I've already created a hundred videos about how to fix all those things. And so, uh, frankly, it's just kind of gotten under my skin over the years of publishing more and more videos on how to fix more more, uh, the same set of problems that I see repetitively with my students, but student after student marches in the door. And they st- I have to fix, I- I'm doing the same thing, the same drills with like different players from all different parts of the world. And it's like, well, you saw this video, right? And they're like, oh yeah, I, I know what I'm supposed to do, like X, Y, Z. And then I swing the iPad around and show them, well, you're not doing X, Y, or Z. So let's go ahead and do the drill. You know, it's like, it's gotten to the point where it, it, it bothers me that, um, I've put in all this work and people believe that they're getting better. And just to be really clear, like the biggest criticism in the comments of that video is, well, I got better watching YouTube. Well, yes, people are getting better from watching lessons on YouTube, but the core, fundamental, essential you know, elements that need to change to make significant jumps in level, by and large, are staying stuck. And that's why I made that video. Just kind of call out the pattern that I'm seeing between the consumption of media and the changing of habits is not directly correlated. <laughs> and uh, I, I felt it was a really important message to put out there since I'm, if you wanna call it a problem, I'm part of the problem by continuing to to uh, produce and create and publish all these pieces of content. No, I think it was, it was a great point because I think one
0: thing that you highlight really well in the book as well is that to improve in tennis is, it's a head scratcher. Like, I mean, in the beginning you can make quick steps if you're athletic, if you have some ball ability, but once you reach a certain level and you play, for example, you usually get into patterns which you talk about a lot, like you play the same guy, you play twice a week, uh, it's not really room for improvement, you don't, you know, try to work on those ingrained habits. Because yeah, I like the way you put it that you really need to, like, the more you do a bad habit, the more ingrained in the system it gets, and harder it is to change later on. Like, and I've, you know, I've been a victim of that and I think many players have all the time in tennis, it's such a difficult sport. And uh, I think it, it's a very good point that you you need to approach it pretty seriously to to improve. You can't just, like, watch a video and, okay, I'm going to do this in my next match because, you know, tennis is not that, that easy to change. Um, that being said, do you think that is one of the reasons, like, you've seen such a growth in pickleball and stuff? Like, because tennis is so difficult. <laughs> is that, like, why uh, pickleball is growing?
1: Yeah, I mean, li- listen, like, I don't... I'm kind of... At heart, a little bit of a pessimist and a little bit cynical, but I try not to. I try not to go down that that path publicly <laughs> because uh, I feel like I have a certain responsibility as a coach to be uh, to lead by example and be positive and be inspiring and try to motivate and, and and keep people like pushing forwards because it is hard and it is a long journey and making significant changes. It does take significant work and effort. So like nobody wants to hear negative, like pessimistic. Uh, messages, but um, with that uh, with that like caveat, I'll say that getting truly getting better at tennis is much harder than people think, and I would say humans, uh, by and large, we want to take the path of least resistance, and and so and yes, pickleball is much easier than tennis. Um, it's a it's a great game. I, I've I've played it. I, I've received some coaching in pickleball. Um, uh, I have no interest in like switching or having to take up any part of my schedule because I still just love the challenge, the mental, the physical, the tactical challenge of tennis is just much, much more attractive to me still. As long as I feel like I have a little bit of juice to squeeze athletically, um, I'll always be drawn, uh, to the challenge of tennis. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's definitely part of it and it's part of why, um, People want to be told that there's an easy path, and that's myself included. You know, if if somebody knocked on my door today and said, "Hey, I could double your audience, I could double your email list, I could double your business tomorrow," just like sign here on the dotted line, I'd be I'd be very hard pressed not to sign on the dotted line. I'd have to I'd have to read through that agreement very very closely because that would be super attractive. So, I'm not saying this from like a um, a condescending or judgmental. You know, it's just human nature. So over the years, and I heard, I listened to a little bit of your uh, interview with with uh, Nicola, and um, he was talking about, uh, he just touched on this very briefly. He said something to the effect of the, the lessons that I feel the strongest about, like almost always do the worst, like it just doesn't get the views because it's something usually that's a little bit deeper, something that's a little bit more nuanced, something that takes a little bit more unpacking and explaining, and or it takes requires a little bit more effort or work or, or like dedication to actually make it pay off in the end, and those things just don't, they don't have legs, like those ideas just aren't sexy, they're, they're not exciting, and they're not going to get the clicks, and so um, in a, that's one of my biggest struggles over the years being a content creator, is the, the hard things are what makes me the most excited, but it's what does the worst in an algorithmic landscape. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that's a big reason why pickleball has, you can start playing competently, even without a a racket sports like background in, in like five or 10 minutes and you can have fun and you can enjoy it. And that's the whole point of, of a pastime or a hobby is to, is to enjoy yourself and and to have a good time. And so it's, yeah, I think it's easy to see why pickleball has taken off the way it has. I think you made some really good points. I mean, I, I see the same sometimes with the content part of it, is that
0: like you put a lot of effort into a piece of, of, of work, you know, you do a long video, you, it's a lot of hours of editing or whatever, you're just the thinking behind it. And that's probably the worst <laughs> ranked video you do. Or yeah. it's like, you get like really disappointed, like, all right, so this is how the world works. I, I put in a lot of effort and then, you know, I, I do a, a racket review video, which is relatively natural and easy for me. That's a much more interesting video. Um, so that's a, that's a frustration. I think, like in in defense of tennis, and I, I do enjoy pickleball. I do enjoy paddle, which is extremely big in Europe. Um, it's it's that tennis has the depth, and it, that things that require a lot of work are beautiful in a way, right? Like it's like it's it's good that it requires a lot of work. It's it's a it's a healthy thing for a human yeah. being that it's not super easy. I think in in today's society to strive for something that's challenging. It's a good thing. So I, I I like when players, and I'm not like giving pickleball any shit. So like I like when players say, you know, I tried this, I tried paddle, I tried pickleball, but I like the challenge of tennis. You know, <laughs> I yeah, see that happen sometimes. Absolutely. Do you see that as well? Like people come back, yeah.
1: Come back like after trying pickleball?
0: Yeah, yeah, or or other sports. Yeah. Um,
1: no, not a lot. Well, I, well, so here's the thing. Like I, I have a very thick filter between, like, the people that I spend time with are super fans of what I do, so they're like, everybody I work with is is a lifer in, in tennis, uh, 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 pending some kind of worst case scenario illness or, like, injury, uh, you know, get, getting sidelined against their will, uh, the people I spend time with are, are all in, they're 100%, you know, pot committed, and and I'm super blessed to be able to uh, to be in that position um, and to be able to spend time with people that are that are that driven and that dedicated. So so I personally don't see I don't work with people that are kind of like wishy washy and like oh I'm try this and try that. Um, yeah, so I, I I'm I'm very blessed. I get to work with people who are extremely passionate, and and so I, I love every minute that I I spend with people like that.
0: Yeah, I think that is the the feeling you have to have when you're a a coach. And and that's the love that you you bring every day because otherwise it can be a quite frustrating job at some points, you know, in trying to help people improve. But what would you say as as a tennis coach is your main strength uh, when you work with players?
1: My My specialization is changing old bad habits. And so my my average student has already has played tennis for a long time. I almost never work with beginners. Um, I almost never work with junior players. Um, my my average student is probably like 55. Started playing tennis when they were a kid. Stopped playing tennis when they got into their like career and started a family and kind of like was head down and in like family and career mode for a while. Now their kids are older. And they're making good money, and now some time is freeing up, and they have some ability to invest in a hobby again. And they're thinking back about how much they enjoyed tennis when they were in like high school or maybe in, in college. And now they're picking it back up. They've been playing a couple years, and they've plateaued wherever their local, wherever they're from. They've already kind of been around the circuit, been to different clubs, worked with different coaches. And they're enjoying the game. They're happy they're back in it. But after five, six, maybe ten years of of working at it, they feel like they're just not getting the results that they should be and they feel stuck. And and that's when they come and, and see me. And that that's like over and over and over and over again. That's the, the story that I hear. Um, if you watch the content, the most boring content I publish is just me working with students. And I... Would say I specialize in being able to analyze somebody's movements and technique and how they swing the racket very quickly because I've only taught with video for over a decade now. It's the only way that I teach. Be able to show them, like, very clearly here's what you're doing now, here's like an elite world class example of what it should look like. Now, let me give you some progressions to bridge the gap between what you're currently doing, what you've done for probably 20, 30, 40 years. And let's let's move one step at a time, like slowly but surely towards a, a, like a world-class way of doing this. And within an hour to an hour and a half, for the most part, I can get people like three quarters of the way there. And when people watch me do that with other students, and they see the before and after of other people I've worked with. It's really motivating for people to come out and spend time with me because we've all been in this position. Like I'm I'm very much like I'm not immune to any of this. I'm also human and I have lots of my own bad habits that have been grooved for decades and decades and decades. And it really doesn't matter how much I know what I'm supposed to do. It doesn't matter how badly I want to change. The neurological pathways are set. They're there. They're very deep. And unless I put in both quality and quantity of repetition over an extended period of time, those pathways won't change. And so where most of my students feel stuck is they don't even know what they don't know. They've never seen themselves on video. They've never seen a comparison of themselves compared to a world-class example. And so they don't even know like where to... They're taking lots of lessons, but most of those are very kind of surface level and they're polishing the habits they already have. But the people that come and see me aren't interested in that surface level analysis. They, they want to fundamentally actually change. And that's a small percentage of tennis players and why I feel so grateful that I get to actually spend time with people like that uh, lesson after lesson that I teach. I know that like when people really smile because
0: they change something, like I was trying to help my mother who would never really properly play tennis and she got the forehand a bit better. And One session, and like you see that smile, like it's like they won something on the lottery just because they can hit a spinny yeah. forehand suddenly, right? So it's like, a, so I, I know that's a, that's a great feeling and something you, you are um, great at getting as well. And you had some issues which I relate to uh, with your one handed back, and you tried to change that. How, how did you feel like the process was on your end when you were like on the other side of it?
1: So, <sighs> It's super challenging. It's it does like I said before. It doesn't make it any easier how much I understand what I'm supposed to do. If you go back several years when I first started working on it, the biggest challenge is small changes feel really big. Like meaning uh, um, small, meaning objectively. Like let's just say I do a poor job of rotating my upper body, and I always have you know, for for 30 years. I haven't coiled my upper body at all. So when I actually do coil my shoulders past my hips by, let's say, five degrees, it feels like 45 degrees to me because it's so much farther than I've ever turned before. And this is part of the problem. This is part of the reason why players get stuck, especially like normal everyday athletes, which I definitely consider myself uh, one of those people, is... um, when it feels big, but you're not actually moving very far, it's very easy to feel that first one, which will be better. If I turn five degrees more than I ever have before, it's going to be a stronger shot. And so when I feel that turn and I see the result, it's human nature to get super excited to have that smile on your face that you talked about uh, with your mom and assume, sweet, it must be it. And I'm like, I got it. And you're only like, of the way there where where you should be getting. And so that's the, that's the hard part. And especially since video is not a normal part of the culture in tennis, not as a player, not as a coach, it's just, it's still weird, which is, which is just incredibly frustrating for me. If I could snap my fingers and just change one thing about the sport of tennis, it it would be to completely normalize the use of video. Um, It's, it's extremely frustrating because if I don't record myself then I'm immediately gonna assume I'm doing the, the right thing by, because I've made a tiny change. And unfortunately, a week or two weeks or three weeks later, since I've only made a small change, I'll probably inch my way back to what was comfortable before. And then a year later, I, I'm looking up and I'm in exactly the same place that I was before. And people repeat that cycle over and over and over and over again, because it's so hard to A, change as much as you actually should away from your bad habit, and then B, do it enough times over a long enough period of time that you don't know how not to do it anymore. Um, the reality is checking those boxes is actually very difficult. And so that was my experience. You know, I thought I was making progress. I would check the video and be like, well, hell, I'm not even close. And repeat, repeat, repeat. You know, try to go farther. Okay, it's a little farther, but I'm still I'm still not there. It's the same, I, it's the exact same for me as it was for all of my students. And the unfortunate thing is... Um, I'm like in the meat of both my family life and my business life. And so I don't have realistically that I I could like, I could do worse at business or I could do worse at family and I could do better at my one hand backhand. And I'm not willing to make that trade right now. So it's kind of hard for me because I'm very competitive and I'm a bit of a, I'm a perfectionist um, at heart. And so, it's not easy for me to accept the reality of those like truths, but for the moment, it is what it is, and I'm more or less focusing on like, doing the best I can with what I have at the moment, because the time that I have to invest in actually making substantive like, changes in my game, it, it doesn't do justice to what's actually required.
0: Yeah, I can, I can, uh, I can uh, you know, see that the trade-off being quite difficult to make. Like, I, I want my one on the backhand better, but my, I won't see my wife for a, <laughs> for a while. Right? It's it's a, uh, it's one of those tough trades, I would say. Yeah. No, but uh, it, it's usually people have one one stroke that is weaker, and and I'm like from the people I talk to, players I talk to, it tends to be the backhand. You know, it's not always the backhand, but it tends, I would say, based on my uh, experience, being really like high up on the list. You know. But there are always ways around it. You can always work on something. You can always slice the ball. Uh, you can also play serve and volley, which you do tend to do quite a <laughs> bit. And, and you're really good at it. You have a really good serve and, and volley. Is that something you miss seeing more, like, on the pro level, or among, like, amateur players? Like, do you miss that part of the game? Because it's quite rare these days.
1: I do miss it. I'm uh, another, like, personality trait of mine is I'm a gambler. Uh, I, I enjoy the action. Um, I, I enjoy the risk. Um, I, it's like a, it's like a game of chicken, you know, uh, like you and like another like athlete basically like just driving head, head to head, like right at each other. And it's like, who's going to blink first. So both in terms of playing tennis and watching tennis, I lo- yeah, I love, I love the excitement of it and like the, the dice rolling like element of it. And you just don't know until you do it, like, whether or not it's going to work, Um, both in a macro sense, like, in terms of, like, over the span of a whole match, but also, like, point by point. It's hard because if you have, like, a 30-second blip of, like, concentration, um, you can lose a bunch of points really fast uh, playing playing that style. So I totally understand with how the courts have changed, with how the technology has changed, with, like, gear and equipment, with how the athleticism has totally changed – over the last couple of decades, I understand why it 's gone away, but yeah i do I do miss it, and I, I still love doing it, and i 'm not going to stop doing it, um, especially in doubles um, i will 'll serve in volley in doubles until i can't i can 't walk anymore <laughs> Make,
0: makes sense i think uh, no I, I I agree as well I also miss parts of that because I think it creates a contrast in styles usually you have a player trying to pass another player and then there's one at the net so you have this kind of dynamic feeling of tennis you know sometimes tennis today can be a little bit too much baseline grinding you know for from two players and it's it's not maybe the same product to watch then always so uh, that, that would be my point of view uh, getting back to video there was one thing I wanted to, to uh, comment on there as well like when I, I video a lot and that's helped me improve quite a bit. And I think both you and I have talked about the importance of putting a camera behind you to improve as a player. It's not that hard like you can have a cheap tripod, cheap smartphone or GoPro, whatever. Uh, it's so easy to do. Uh, but people, what I've noticed, like people don't want to do it because they may be either lazy or they're afraid of what they're going to see. And I've seen that like when I've shown footage to players I've just hit with. Who are generally like see themselves as pretty advanced players and i know how this the horror show that my tennis can be you know i i know well <laughs> yeah. what i'm gonna watch you know but for them it becomes like a shock right it's like no I, but i'm roger federer what is this what am i seeing uh is that something you encounter as well like when you show players like this is how you actually look when you hit the forehand or backhand or whatever
1: yeah uh a i'm gonna steal the phrase horror show uh to describe uh to describe my game i, I like that it's good so I've been doing this so long now, and um, again, I'm very fortunate. Like um, I said before, I've got like a really big filter uh, between me and the people that come and see me. Generally, the people that come and see me, they've watched me long enough and they've consumed enough of my content that they already they they know like they already know. <laughs> like they might not feel good about it, and they might be kind of anxious and a, a little bit like afraid like to see. I would say probably probably 25 maybe 30 percent of the players who come and work with me have already seen themselves at least a little bit which is super high compared to you know the the just general population of tennis players and the 70 percent of people that have never seen themselves um i would say probably 50 percent of them they're coming to see me just because what you said they just don't want to do it themselves and it's like well you know I, i could learn about angles and tripods and cameras and, and like, uh, framing and like, you know, getting it set up. So like people think that they have to make it a lot better than it really has to be for it to be valuable, I think. And also there's of course that fear of like, uh, sometimes it's more helpful to have somebody else tear the band-aid off instead of doing it yourself. So I would say probably half of my students, Uh, that's a big part of the value I'm giving them is they're coming to somebody who that's all they do is this type of analysis and revelation of like, here's what you're actually doing. And they've, they've watched me long enough that they know I'm, I'm going to deliver the news in a very respectful, like gentle way. (laughs) And so uh, it's going to be like as positive as it, as it could be. And that's definitely a big part of the motivation that why people come and see me. Uh, There's no question about it. Yeah, what was your what was your question? I feel like I got off track uh, a little bit. No, no, you uh, you answered
0: it perfectly. Like it's that uh, the sensation they get when they they see themselves. But I, I think in in a good way, like that they when they work with you, they know they're they're actually investing their time and effort into their tennis. And also for you, then you have a better experience as a coach because it's never good. Like people who coach kids or the juniors, even good, pretty good juniors sometimes get the feeling like okay he doesn't want to be on the tennis court or she doesn't want to play tennis i played with with like players who are top 10 in europe in their age uh like 15 year olds or whatever and they don't even want to play tennis like you talk to them afterwards like no no it's my parents who wants me to play tennis and they're like a good player so it's it's a it's a fascinating part of like also the tennis uh, kind of parent and student relationship but one thing that you've talked about a lot and that i agree with although it might seem counterintuitive is the the lack of importance of equipment, uh, although it's something I've, I've yapped on about a lot because I've been kind of, uh, you know, focused on equipment for a bit and I, I do help some, some pros with equipment and also a lot of beginners to, to, um, to intermediates. My main takeaway has been like get the equipment out of your head so you can focus on your tennis. But what people seem to want is to get the equipment more and more into their head. And that seems to be some a trend that I've noticed. So, like, what's your take on this? And I, I know a part of it, but it, it's interesting to discuss. Like, how important is really the racket to you, in a way?
1: Not very, uh, <laughs> to be totally honest. Um, so, yeah, it, it's a big topic. And I would say, first of all, you've done such a great job over the, and it's a little bit of a, like a blessing and a curse, right? You, you've you published a lot of great content of, about gear. Uh, that's been helpful and insightful. And so that's part of what kind of bounces, like the message that bounces back that you hear from your audience is going to be, you know, it's going to be part of it. When I work with, with students, I have very, li- I have very little in terms of conversation with players about gear, because I don't ever, t- I don't really ever talk about it. Hardly ever. And so it doesn't really come, come back to me. Um so so that's part of it. It and l- let me just like clear the air here. Of course, it's important, like it's important that you have a, a racket and string setup that's logical and like makes sense based on your level of play, your swing speed, your style of play, like uh, of course that's important. But what what I don't really um get into personally, it just doesn't personally interest me is like f- micro like fine tuning Uh, Like, which brand is better? Like, I don't think brand matters at all. As long as it's a major manufacturer that has decent quality control and, like, they've been in the game for a while and they've established themselves as being able to produce a quality product. And as long as you're selecting the, the head size, the overall weight, and, like, the balance of racket that makes sense for you and your play style, then you're good. And... Could you improve your game a couple percentage points up or down if you go in the wrong direction? Yeah, as, absolutely, definitely. But I guess I'm more—I don't know—it's—it's it's in the title of my my website. Like I try to focus on what I think is most important, and I have beaten other players with a frying pan and one bets uh, playing with frying pan. And so, can I play my best tennis with a frying pan? Absolutely not. Like, it's not even close. But can I play pretty, like, decent tennis with a frying pan? Yeah, yeah, I can. And so somewhere between frying pan and your absolute optimal, you know, optimized, like, setup of, like, balance and swing weights and, rack, you know, string tension and, like, uh, string pattern and, like, all, you know, what, whatever, all, all the rest of it, somewhere in between those two extremes... Um, like a big chunk of that, like 50% of that spectrum probably, you're going to be like right in the ballpark of your performance uh, capacity day in and day out. And I think changing fundamental habits, like l- let's just pick the split step. I've been freaking railing on the split step for over a decade. and And yet 97% of tennis players still don't use a split step. If you're going to obsess over like 1 or 2 pounds in your string like tension and you're experimenting with like what you put in your crosses and mains because you think it's going to make you a much better tennis player, but you don't split step, what the hell are you like you're you're wasting your time. <laughs> uh by by learning to split step, you could make like a 10 or 20% improvement in your quality of your play whereas, you know, going up or down in tension by a couple pounds maybe you we're adding one or two, you know, percentage points. So, um, that's my general thoughts. I, I, hopefully this doesn't come off as me saying that it doesn't matter. It does matter, but I've always just been kind of obsessive about focusing on what I feel is the most fundamental thing. Um, and just really like kind of focus on that. And so because of that over the years, like I, and the other thing is I know what I like and my general response to people who ask me for advice is find out what you like. Like, I know what I like. And there's going to be a, a an optimal, like, size, weight, balance, you know, uh, swing weight that feels most comfortable to you, flexibility that you like the most. It's probably going to be totally different than what I like. And the only way you'll know what you like is by trying a bunch of stuff, narrowing it down, and then just stick with that once you know what you like. Um, so, yeah, it's just like anything else. Listen, I have students that endlessly tinker with their technique to their detriment. And they're so hyper-fixated on trying to like change every little like bend and angle of you know their wrist, and they're trying to like mimic their favorite player just because they think Alcaraz is cool. Like they want to hit their forehand like him. There's lots of ways that players can go in an unhealthy path with with technique, and um trying to master the game from a technical perspective can go in a really negative position in a really negative direction. And so it's human nature. The same thing happens with gear where people can get hyper fixated on it and go down a rabbit trail of just kind of wasting a lot of time. If you're just enjoying fixating on gear, fantastic. Go, go ahead and like have fun with it and, and have a good time. Um, but if you think you're going to make like some mega jump in your performance um, because you're adding like a gram of lead tape, you know, somewhere, it's, it's probably not going to work out that way.
0: No, I 100%, oh, 100% agree. I, I think yeah. it's, it's uh, people sometimes get uh, too locked into things. I also have friends that get too crazy about technique. Like it's it's all they think about is how to hit a, a proper ATP forehand uh, right. and just, you know, tweaking stuff. But but I, you know, obviously talk a lot to players who have tested like, you know, loads and loads of rackets where my point is like, you know, if you find something you like, stick to that, like it's the same with shoes you know you have you find a shoe that you like if you can stock up on that shoe that's a good idea you don't have to buy then a new shoe right because then that shoe is unavailable and your foot is important like you might have back problems because you wrong used the wrong shoe and stuff like that similar to rackets like oh you find a racket string i like it maybe you can stock up like buy four rackets it lasts you a while and uh, you're good you don't have to look at racket reviews you know and I, i generally think that's like like common sense is usually the best when it comes to technique, when it comes to rackets, strings, whatever, you know, so it's like that common sense, don't waste too much time unless you love it, and it becomes your kind of passion thing, you know, so I, th- I completely agree. I think Nicola was also pointing this out, you know, when we talked, and I think a lot of players have the same opinion, like, find what you like, don't go down the rabbit hole, and uh, stick to that, then try to work on, on fundamental stuff. And then w- now we get to kind of a point where I think some people put maybe the least amount of effort in, at least in my experience, is like the, the strategy and the tactics of like how do you construct a point no matter if you're only slicing or, uh, you know, moonballing a lot or whatever you're doing. Um, and that's something obviously you work with a lot as well and, and uh, how do you feel like that, like the reception of like proper tennis tactics and strategy is among the tennis community today?
1: Well, I think it's, it's really good. It's really positive. I, I think people inherently understand the the value of it i think what the biggest misunderstanding is that there's blind spots and there's gaps between feel and real just like there is with technique i think it's intuitive for people to understand that okay like it might feel like i'm doing something with my racket or my body but the video might show that i'm doing something a little different but when it comes to let's say what patterns you tend to play do you tend to hit more cross-court or down the line do uh, you tend to hit flatter, more with more topspin? Do um, you tend to take more risk or, or less risk? I think people assume that, well, it's me making the decisions out of there, so of course, like I, I'm, I'm totally like in tune with what it is that the decisions that I'm making. And in my experience coaching, that's not true at all. Uh, people have a certain image in their mind of the type of tennis that they play, but the video, in my experience, reveals. Just as much like friction between the feel and real perspectives as, as with technique. And so, just yet another reason why everybody should record themselves today and find out what's actually happening out there. And, it's, it's, and again, same thing like with me. I, I'm in a privileged position that I, by default, record everything I do on a tennis court. And I've spent a lot of time over the years watching myself. I'm one of the more self-aware humans on the face of the earth, probably. And it's the same thing with me, with tactics. I watch back all my matches and routinely see things where I'm like, what the, like that, that makes, that was the stupidest like decision ever. And I can generally kind of work my way back through it. Like, okay, I can see like in the moment what I was seeing here when I freeze time and like look at what was happening. So I understand why I made that mistake. But every time I make a mistake like that and I recognize it and I see it is a huge opportunity for growth and improvement because to the degree that I'm unaware of those gaps between the decisions I make and how much sense they make from a, like a textbook you know, standpoint, to the degree I'm unaware of those gaps – if I don't know what I don't know and I'm just making poor decisions and I'm not, I don't even know what those poor decisions are, then improving is extremely, extremely difficult because you're kind of painting yourself in a corner with poor fundamentals. And if you're assuming you're making good choices from a fundamental basis while you're actually not, that's where people really get stuck and they they plateau. So I would highly, highly encourage everybody to record themselves. Like you said before, I, I know it's painful at first, but it's kind of like hearing yourself you know for the first time a recording of your voice, and it's like uh oh, that's that's not that's not what I sound like, is it like it, because to to ourselves the tone is very different because of how our our skull like resonates um but as as you hear there's no longer any dissonance for me and maybe maybe that's the same for you too, but when I hear myself uh on a recording, it's the same as what I hear in my own head now uh, I don't know how many years that's been the case. And it's the same thing when I watch myself play tennis now. There's no longer the dissonance because I've watched myself so many times. I've torn off all of the Band-Aids. There's no Band-Aids left anymore. And now I can, I can just, like, um, in a calm, objective, like, non-emotional way, just take in the information like, in a raw like data kind of uh, sense. And it's so, mo- so powerful for me now. And I I want nothing more for everybody watching than just be able to get to that place where it's there's no longer the fear. There's no longer the anxiety. There's no longer like the um, the shame of like seeing yourself anymore. And it's it's just data and it's just information. But I recognize like that takes a long time and and a big commitment to the process. Um, But it's so much more rewarding and so much more enjoyable uh, when you can get to that point.
0: I would think it's interesting that you pointed that out because it's something I, I feel 100% myself. Like, I, the, the voice, I, I don't even think about it anymore. Like, when I started doing stuff like this, or, I mean, I worked in the radio in the States before, many years ago, 20 years ago. Um, and when I started playing tennis, it was like, wow, you know, is this what I'm looking uh, at? <laughs> but now it's just, I, I, you know, I feel like I, I know how the shot looks even, you know, when I look back at, like, I, I record almost everything, right? And then I edit and I have to go through a lot of like even match footage, whatever, just to have like a shorter video. Uh, but I, I find enjoyment in that. I find enjoyment in actually seeing my own even mistakes. But also like then you have some maybe good shots. You're like, oh, that was a nice highlight. Like, you know, good, good stuff. Do you need the, to train that muscle of self-hate muscle? <laughs> you need to train it <laughs> or break it down. Kind of.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. It really is super analogous to the, the self-auditory uh, like auditory, um but what's interesting about it, and, and what I really like that analogy, because what's interesting about hearing yourself like on the well, kids these days don't know about this remember answering machines? Like, what that was the first thing that popped in my <laughs> head when you hear yourself on the answering machine, you're like, oh, like that's not what I sound like. Um, but the reality is, every other human on planet Earth who's ever heard your voice, when they hear your voice come out of the answering machine, they're like, yeah, that's what you sound like, like that's that's you. Like that's, that's Jonas. Like that's what Jonas sounds like. And it's the same thing with tennis. When you watch yourself on video for the first time and you're like, oh, like that, that's, that's not me. Like that's, that's not Ian. Like I, I feel so different than that. Like there's no, this must be a mistake. Like I'm a much better tennis player in my own head than that. But the funny thing is every other human on the face of the planet that's ever watched you play tennis knows that the person you see on the video is actually your real tennis self. You are the only person that's being fooled by the filter. You're the only person that's being tricked. And so uh, in my experience, when I point that out to people, they're like, oh, yeah, I guess like wouldn't you actually like to know who you really are? Wouldn't that maybe be valuable (laughs) that you get past the embarrassment and you actually find out like who you actually are as a tennis player? Because that's the biggest obstacle in your way for improvement. It's just not even knowing what the hell you even do like on the court. So I, the sooner people can get over that like, fear and the embarrassment, the faster they're gonna improve, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, 100% agree. And I, I think like, the, the thing is, you don't have to put yourself out there in terms of posting stuff on YouTube channels or social media. Mm-hmm. You can just watch it at your own leisure at home, right? Like, like you say, people who play against you or watch you when you play, they already know how you play. So this is just for you, right? You don't need to publish any, yep. anything anywhere. But then there are people, you know, now it's more and more common. Like, people put their own tennis out on YouTube. Uh, they can get some trolls. It can be a nasty experience. And they, so it's not for everyone, right? But you, you've you started this real tennis channel, which is, um, you know, match play between players of, of generally different levels. But I would say it's pretty like 4.5, 4.0, 5.0, like that kind of level. And yep. I th- find it really refreshing because, it's a, you know, it shows every point. There's no like fancy fancy highlights only uh what's the reception been to that like and and how have you experienced like being on that channel yourself when you actually show your own match play
1: i I'll, I'll start with the second question first I, I i i mentioned earlier that i'm i'm uh a bit of a adrenaline junkie and um and i you know i i like uh I love competition and, and I love being in the face of like failure <laughs> like that. I definitely, I, I just kind of get off on that. And so that's part of the reason why I started the, the channel and um, p- being in one of those matches with generally we're streaming it live to our, our channel members on real tennis. We're recording it with, uh, I don't know how many, let's see, one, two, three, four, uh, it was four or five cameras Um, there's two peers, there's two like other coaches that are watching and doing live commentary, like in a commentary booth. And I, and and tennis is my job, like tennis is my profession. So, um, I might do something, any given point that would be, no, I'm way past this now, but like on paper, I might lose to somebody that is like, so this is what, like your ego says, right? I might take an L (laughs) that's like so embarrassing That my career is over and and people watch it and are like why am I listening to this guy like he he just freaking sucks and so um, I love being in that position (laughs) maybe I'm a little I'm a little bit uh, sick (laughs) but um, it feels to me like I, I played three years of college tennis and it feel that is the closest like I've come to that feeling where it's like all your teammates and peers are watching the result matters for, like, the results of the team. Like, the the pressure of, like, the whole rest of the team is, like, on your shoulders. And it's, like, this is, like, the pinnacle of the competitive career for just about everybody who's there. Uh, parents are there, you know, watching. Other team is watching. Coaches are watching. And so the real tennis matches are the closest thing I've felt to that kind of, like, experience of competition and player after player that comes on the channel for the first time, when I interview them afterwards and I ask them how it was, um, they say the same thing. Like a lot of the players on the channel have accomplished really amazing things in terms of like national rankings or playing, you know, in a fancy like D one college and they're like, This is like the most pressure I've ever felt. <laughs> Uh, coming on the real tennis court, and I so I love being a part of that experience, and I love providing that experience for other adrenaline, you know, junkies, and watching them and seeing how they deal with it, and seeing how they uh, manage the the pressure and the expectations. So that's what it's like to play on the channel, and I think the response, honestly, I'm I I was hoping that it would be much more mainstream reception. But it just like everything else that I do, it looks like it's prop, it's more of a, a a niche thing, and I was hoping it would kind of, you know, just like everybody who makes content, of course, I was hoping it would kind of blow up and like become a big thing, because the people who do enjoy it, who do watch it, uh, a comment that I see over and over and over again is this is way better than watching professional tennis because of the way that we engineer it and we get real-time feedback from players and we edit it together so that it's like a story arc and we, we kind of dramatize it, you know, a little bit with the editing and the music and and stuff like that. And like the matchups and like rematches and stuff like that uh, in the commentary. And uh, we we try hard to make it as entertaining and dramatic as possible while still staying true to like the, what really happened uh, in the match. And I was I was hoping that would become like a big kind of phenomenon and I, I I'm still like, just to be clear, like I'm really proud of what we create and what we do is, um, really special. But, um, so for people who appreciate that kind of storytelling, the feedback is extremely strong, super positive, and people really love it and appreciate it. But between you and me and whoever else listens, I was definitely hoping that it was going to kind of become a bigger thing, but it looks like it's going to be more of a more of a niche uh, audience. That sounds like my life pretty much. <laughs> it's
0: like it's, it's always yeah, it's okay, okay. Maybe this, this could have some wings. That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a classic, I think. Uh, but it's it's funny because I, I, it's also a thing I could see have really strong legs to move and 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 create like a you know a motion around around the tennis world because I really like the production format. I like that. It feels like a vulnerable situation where people, you know, have to be very honest when they have to speak in between, you know. And and that's really how tennis should be framed, I think. Also, pro tennis sometimes lose out because the drama is not there. And the storytelling, even from the commentators, is not quite there. Like, it just feels a little bit stale and something we could improve. And then you have channels like uh, Winston Dew, for example, that he also does, like, match play. And that's doing really well. So I I don't like for me YouTube is a mystery. Like I, I I if someone wants YouTube consulting, they should go to anyone but me, because I don't understand anything about this <laughs> stuff.
1: Let's let's talk about that a little bit because I I've, I've listened to your other uh, interviews with creators, and I, I feel like I, I've been around this game for a really long time. I've invested a lot in my own education, and I, I don't think it's as mysterious as as people make it out to be. I think I think what makes it feel mysterious is we have a all humans have like a hardcore like filter between our brain and what is actually happening in real life and that filter is our our own preferences our our ego and uh not wanting to embarrass ourselves um the way we think that things should be done uh all of that really kind of paints like what we see in, in everyday life you know not just in tennis or making youtube videos The reality of the the algorithm is it's going to reward the best video. And the best video is purely subjective based on the audience. And so when we upload a video that does poorly, um, humans didn't enjoy it. (laughs) And when we upload a video that kills it, humans really, really loved it. And that's it. And that's the whole game. And so um, if you if you try to back your way into it from like an analytical perspective, like, Oh, I need to have this many camera angles and I need to like cut, you know, the angle this many times. And I need to have like animations and like titles on the screen. And you, you go at it from a tactical uh, perspective, which is what I think almost all of us do that are creators. um, Then you're just always going to be chasing your tail. Cause you'll, you'll upload one video that crushes it, and you're like, oh man, I put the little like, graphic in the corner like this time, like, oh, that, that really made it do better. And it's, it's all, is not true at all. What it really comes down to is, A, is the core idea, is like the, the theme and like the bones of the, the concept itself, is it intriguing in and of itself to humans? And if the answer is no, you don't have a shot ever. It doesn't even matter how good the rest of it is. It doesn't matter how good the camera quality is. It doesn't matter how good the audio quality is. If the core structure of the idea of the the like every video that you upload is like uh, it's a a story. It's got a beginning, a middle, and the end, and and an end. And if the concept on paper out of the gate isn't very intriguing, then it never even has a chance. So a the concept has to be attractive to humans and then be in the first 10 seconds. If you don't pay off that good concept and make people believe that you're going to actually reveal whatever it is that you promised to reveal or you double down on the intrigue and you make them believe that I'm in for like a journey here. And I, I'm what I just signed up for is like a, a ride that's going to be uh, enjoyable and maybe emotional, uh maybe revelatory and i'm going to learn something like kind of secret that like nobody knows. There has to be some emotional like human hook that gets set in the first couple seconds of the the video that pays off the big concept that you promised in the thumbnail and the title. And so if you do the thumbnail and the title and you kill it but you don't pay it off in the first like 10 15 seconds and reassure people yes you're actually gonna receive what it is that you were hoping in the first couple seconds now you've you've lost again and nobody's gonna watch it. It basically it basically comes down to clicks and then retention. Clicks and retention. You won't get the clicks unless the big picture theme is is hot. And if the big picture theme is hot but the retention is garbage because you didn't pay it off and you're not leaving breadcrumbs and you're not kind of stringing them along in a respectful way uh, where they feel like, wow, I'm enjoying this, you know, journey. That's the retention part of it. If the retention's poor, then it doesn't matter if you get clicks. YouTube won't promote it. So um, it's really very simple. It is like super basic. You either get the, the, the clicks and the retention or you don't get views if you get one or the other like you've you've uploaded videos i'm sure they have an average watch time that like crushes and maybe it's like 10 minutes or 20 minutes or something but the big idea isn't sexy enough or intriguing enough to get the clicks you need the clicks and the retention and once you start figuring out how to get both pieces then you can you can scale to the moon and and that's basically it and uh i know what gets clicks and retention and I've made so many freaking videos over the years that, um, that there's, there's certain like topics that I d- I just don't want to talk about anymore. And it's the, and it's the sexy topics because I've already made so many of those videos on how to hit a forehand with 10 more miles per hour or how to hit a, uh, like a kick serve, you know, or I've made so many freaking videos like on those topics that, um, I'm burned out on it and I've shifted over the years to just making what I really personally find rewarding. And I actually want to talk about because if I try to reverse engineer the algorithm and like, um, human, the human response every single time to make a hot tennis tutorial, then I'll eventually just go insane and quit and I'll get burned out. And I've been on that doorstep many times, uh, in the past. And so kind of rambling right now, but um, did I answer the question of like, uh, how to get views, does does that make sense?
0: No, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, coming from a marketing background, like I worked many many years for like, uh, you know, like CMO for like online companies. And all you talk about like is uh, kind of retention, conversion, like new signups, blah, 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 you know, the whole curve. And for me, it was more like this whole thing was more of a passion project where I did not want to do it like that. Like it's almost on purpose. I like you exactly <laughs> like you. I wanted Earth to like do that,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> no. I wanted to do stuff that I find interesting because I, I think sometimes I mean the way you let it out there, which I think is one hundred percent correct, is that it's like how Mr. Beast does it, and he does it to perfection. He knows like okay, I capture the guy, yep. you know, this is what we need to do for retention. He studies every video, has a whole team, does everything perfectly, yep. and he's built this machine right. Um, but then there's also like a part of YouTube. I watch quite a lot of YouTube compared to other stuff. I don't watch it hardly in Netflix and stuff like that. Um, is that you, sometimes you just want to feel like at home with a creator or without a, like a theme or just something that in that type of video that makes you feel like a certain way that you like, or even if the pace is slower, even if there's no like, you know, this uh, promise will be revealed in minute five of the video, <laughs> you know, it's like ultra fast pace yeah. and stuff like that. So yeah that's the way i've approached it uh but but yes ob- obviously if you want to have a big reach on youtube you need to think of it like a like a, you know you're working for um like hbo yeah you, know? you need to uh, you know go a little bit like that like how do i make this super sexy for the most people because tennis okay. is is niche already i mean tennis is even tennis is a big sport but watching tennis on youtube is still a niche i would say like it's a hard like if you talk to other creators if you review apple products for example there you have a possibility if you make really good reviews to create quite a strong following but um even tennis coaching, which is a pretty popular topic it has a smaller niche I would say than many other things on youtube uh, would you agree with that
1: yeah and that's the um in a nutshell um that's the conclusion I've come to honestly many times over the years um the hardest part for me over the years and in, in doing this in a and and having some longevity is balancing my competitive nature and um badly wanting to grow like the business with the with my like authentic like creator self like the like I guess there's like the the competitive like business side of me and then there's like the the arts like side of me that like just wants to have um authenticity and um integrity and like act, just make like the things that I feel strongly about and the the tug of war between those um those that it really is at odds, like it, it's kind of opposite like sides of the the spectrum, and uh, that's been a struggle for me. And every time I get kind of depressed and frustrated by our lack of growth in terms of like the company, I have to go back to remind myself again, you have chosen a niche of a niche of a niche of a niche. Like, there's there's tennis, which I just watched a video the other day that said tennis, I don't know if this is accurate or not, has 1.3 billion fans. So that's, like, the top of the funnel. Like, people who just like tennis. Uh, and then the sub-niche is people who play tennis is much smaller than people who just like tennis. Then you have people who play tennis who would like to get better. That's a much smaller number than just the people who play tennis. Then below people who want to get better at tennis and play tennis are people that are actually willing to be uncomfortable and are actually willing to have band-aids like get pulled off and get exposed a little bit uh for the sake of improvement and i so that's where i'm operating i'm operating like four levels down uh from tennis which is already a small subset of like humans mr beast is operating on the humans you know like level <laughs> and uh and so that's why uh, in, in addition to, like, his, like, unbelievable work ethic and his understanding of human psychology and his understanding of, like, storytelling um, and engagement, that's why he's able, to, you know, all those things and and many more is why he's able to get, you know, 100 million views on a video and why when I create something that I really, really care about, I get, like, a 1,000. Um, it's a combination of being willing, like, am I willing to sacrifice the art for the views, okay. If the answer is no, and I've chosen uh a five-layer down like niche and I'm gonna stay true to like the art side of it, that it is what it is. Like I, I've chosen my my destiny. And um there's some days that I wake up in the morning and um the business side of it is, you know, really stressful and I wish I could just kind of let go of the art and just be a business person. There's been times in the past where the business has been doing really well, but I don't feel like I'm quite being true like to the art side of it. that's been a minority it's usually the other it's usually the other way around um, yeah does that, does that make sense?
0: It makes a lot of sense and i I, I resonate hundred percent like I mean if you work in money industries, which is what I did before, uh, doing this now I can do i've done this full time since last year right so and doing this in some way full time and then it, it, the the thing is like i am a very like i like artsy stuff like i like you know playing music and and creating stuff and i wrote like two novels before and, and i i just love the arts of some like creating stuff well, that's a hard thing to uh, to marry with business like arts and business they, they it's a tough thing to marry like I you i would if in the future if i would could afford it i would like want to get like a business manager or someone who just thinks about that because i don't want to deal with it technically right yeah uh, even though I, I have an understanding of it from working so long for companies that that you know f- do that uh it, it's still something i don't really feel comfortable doing 100 percent so i i 100 comp- i 100 agree with you and being both the creator and the business person or the CEO is a very tough, I think that's an extremely tough balance to um, to play, right? That's something that I think all of us that I've talked to now, like the content creators, like m- many of us do it ourselves, pretty much everything. Uh, but you, you have the editing at least, you you put that out, right? What, what's your team structure like?
1: Yeah, you know, I I really put, I pushed for probably a five year period to really try to scale and grow and and make it as big of like a of a, like a real business as possible. And I'm past that that point now and I'm, I'm kind of on my way uh, down on the other side of the hill uh, of making that push at this point. Um, at our peak, we had, I think, seven full-time uh, team members, a combination of coaches and editors and um, b- uh, business and like marketing uh, consultants and and stuff like that. And, uh, right now it's me and two full-time editors and a, like a customer service slash coach, a customer service manager who just like every day he manages our inbox. So like, like things that I'm not willing to do anymore. I would, I actually really enjoy editing. Like I like editing, but it's just as an, I'm not a great editor. A, like the guys who edit my stuff are way better, better editors than me. They can do it better than me, faster than me anyway. Um, B... It's not like the unique value that I bring to the organization. Uh, The unique value I bring to the organization is making students happy, giving them incredible experiences so that they continue to support the business and come coming up with content, whether it's paid content or free content that's as engaging and widespread as possible so that it again supports, you know, the business. Um, If I'm not spending my time on those things, then I'm, I'm probably not, maximizing like our our results so I outsourced editing starting like eight or nine years ago and I'm still involved very much in the creative process um I certain videos I am um I do you know notes on we have like a team chat you know the editors and so um on more creative videos we'll put in the first cut and then all of us will like give notes the editor goes back cuts it again gives us a second draft we'll give notes again so i'm still part of like the the creative process but it doesn't make sense for me to push those buttons and like click the mouse like for those things because it's not my strength and i would say that's the number one like pitfall that creators fall into uh when they get stuck in terms of making it like a real business um is they don't let they don't let go they're not comfortable letting other people uh do things that they would rather control. And as long as you have to be touching everything, it can't ever get bigger than the number of hours that you put into it. The only way to grow like a real like sustainable business is to let go of things and let other people do it for you. And finding the right people is maybe the hardest part. Um, there's just a lot of trial and error in that process and a lot of like giving people test projects and saying, sorry, it's not gonna work until you find the right people, and it's, it's, it's a pain in the ass up front, but then when you fi- when you do find the right person, it unbelievably just frees your time, and your brain, and your creativity, and it's the only way to to make stuff like what we do uh, bigger and better, so as long as I can, I'm gonna, it would really be a shame for me to have to go back to editing, editing my own stuff, because that would just simply mean that I just can't, like, the, the bottleneck would be would be tiny at that point if I had to edit my own stuff. Um, the only way I'm able to do multiple channels and multiple styles of content uh, to provide like entertainment and value to multiple types of people is because I let other people touch my stuff. And if I didn't let anybody touch my stuff, I'd be serving a much smaller audience with a much more narrow type of content. And for some people that's enough and that's that's fantastic. Um, but if you want to grow your reach and and help more people, then it's critical to let other people into the process. Yeah, 100% agree. I think it's letting go is tough. Like
0: I'm also a kind of controlish person, and you know having an editor would be a, a relief. But then you feel like oh, but maybe that's not where I should put the effort. Like because the editing I kind of like, although I'm not good either. Uh, and I see like the, there are channels that are like Felix, for example, for Tennis Brothers. He does a very good job editing himself. It seems like. But it's also going to be a time issue at some point, you know. It it's technically seems to be that case always. Because editing something that to be really good is a real craft. Uh, for people who haven't edited videos, it's, uh, I can tell you, it's that's, that's not that easy. It looks easy with the timeline just doing that. But if you, if you want to be really good at it, it's quite tough, you know. Yeah, so talking about um, videos and editing and all that stuff, um, do you have other like social media channels that you put effort into? Or you are you like, you're focused on YouTube as the main kind of... Um, vehicle of the uh, essential tennis
1: yeah youtube's always been the the primary hub of like our content and then we just repurpose from there so like we um our second biggest is our facebook page but things just get repurposed for facebook like from youtube uh most of our long-form content just you know we, we just upload the same file over to facebook uh and then instagram is number three um obviously things have to be formatted significantly different for instagram so i I like that youtube started doing the short form content because it just makes it that much easier for us to to mirror you know similar content between different platforms um but yeah it's it's that it's in that order for us right now uh youtube has always been number one and then facebook and then instagram after that yeah makes sense tiktok interested or uninterested you know, we made an account like years and years ago, and I, we uploaded a couple of things. But remember what, when I described our core, like student, like we're talking about somebody who's fifty-five, yeah. uh, like professional, like, kids are older. Um, they're not on TikTok, so I, I know we could get a lot of views if we focused on that, but it wouldn't serve our our core demographic. Uh, our core demographic is very, it's in that order: it's uh, YouTube, Facebook, and then uh, Instagram. And so, yeah, as TikTok matures and the audience matures, maybe we'd put more time into it, but right now we're not. Talking about maturing, you have a, a pretty large family. How many kids do you have? Is it four or five? You
0: have quite a few, right?
1: Oh, no, you must have heard me talking about my brother. My brother James, uh, his wife is expecting their fifth uh, later this year. I have two kids. I have a 13-year-old and a, a 10-year-old. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that might well been it. But still, like, do do you have any
0: visions or plans or ideas to get them to play tennis, or they have other hobbies? Zero.
1: <laughs> they have other hobbies, yeah. Um, before I had yeah. children, uh, I made a promise to myself that I was, I was not going to be a, a tennis parent. Um, not that I would like keep them from playing tennis if they wanted to, but uh, having spent my entire life around uh, a game <laughs> and uh, watching the behavior, of parents and and watching <laughs> parent after parent destroy their relationship uh with their child like in very sad like um catastrophic like emotionally catastrophic uh ways um I mean really truly uh the images come to mind that just make me so so sad and um so before I even had children like i I would be next to those courts like teaching lessons and like feeling like so much pity for these kids and uh I just made a promise to myself um a long time ago that when I had kids uh I was not gonna I was not gonna hurt them like that um and so I've been very 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 like hands off with my kids in the sense that uh we allow them to have whatever whatever interest like whatever's piquing their their interest at the moment like we we totally Allow them the space and the time and, if necessary, the money to, uh, to go pursue that. And um, I think it's really important to let kids, like, um, explore and be their own human and uh, not get in the way of that uh, process. So they've both, in, like, one-hour pockets, like, shown interest in tennis. Like, they both have tennis rackets, and we have, we have tennis balls around the house. And uh, I would say probably six times a year. Uh, my kids say, Hey, let's play tennis. And we go into the street and we hit the ball back and forth for like 15 minutes. And then, and then they're good for a couple months again. And, uh, so that's, that's my kids involvement with, uh, with tennis. I think that's a very healthy take take because it's it's also something that
0: I've seen so much around like traveling around the tennis scene, tennis world in different countries is that like, you know, you see these very toxic parents. I'm not saying all parents are toxic because obviously there are success stories and there are very, you know, healthy relationships. But uh, it's it's almost like a famous um, cliche, almost like the tennis parent who's kind of like forcing their daughter or son to, to stay yep. in tennis. And uh, I think it's a difficult relationship. Uh, what do you think of these pros that still have their parents as coaches? Like uh, you know, uh, Stefanos, I you know uh, hang out a bit with, and uh, then we have other ones. And it seems so so for me in most cases. What's your take?
1: My opinion is it's just not worth it um let's so so a let, let's just acknowledge the fact that it's like a one jeez l- l- i mean um yeah I, I have really strong uh feelings on this um let's let's just That's say fine. <laughs> let, let's just say that you have lots of money and lots of time and your child is really talented those three are uh, in un unthinkable luxuries for like the vast majority of like humanity so like all already like but let's just say let's just say hypothetically you have lots of money lots of time and a really gifted child even if you have those three things which are necessary to like make it in the game of tennis it's still one to multiple millions like odds that your child is going to have the the drive the like dedication to like the craft, um, even if you <laughs> even if like hypothetically, um, you are overbearing and force them like like an Agassiz, you know kind of story, and, and you essentially make them do it. The odds of them actually being good enough and actually trying hard enough to be successful at a level where it actually is ROI positive, like it actually pays like back more than what you invested is is astronomically just terrible, terrible, terrible odds. And so what are you giving up? So let, let's just say you check all those boxes and you beat the odds. And it's like one in like 5 million kids that have the time, the money, and the talent. Actually, like you're one of the 100 or 200 people on the face of the planet that like actually like makes a living. Um, what are you potentially, like you said, there are, there's some great like sports parents out there. But potentially, like let's just take a risk analysis, like a cost-risk, you know, uh, uh, analysis here. Potentially, you're sacrificing your child's emotional health and well-being. Potentially, you're sacrificing your relationship with your child, and you're making it transaction, transactionally based. Uh, you are like the, you're like pouring the like water of like motivation on the top of the funnel, and. Trickling out in the bottom is effort. And if you like make that your relationship with your child, you'll never have a good relationship with your child, like for the re- for the rest of their life. Um, and you may completely destroy the relationship with the game and with the sport, uh, where they come to resent it and they hate it. and it becomes something that they just like have to do because of all the pressure you've put on them in a familiar uh, way, like in a family sense, in a monetary sense, in a time sense. Your 10-year-old's not stupid. Like They see the time invested. They see the money invested. They see all the the driving and trips. And the last thing they want to do is let down their parents. They're not emotionally mature enough to understand um, that they could say no, hypothetically, if they wanted to. You're giving up so much for a tiny, tiny, tiny possibility that they're going to make it. And it's just crazy to me that parents go hard And choose the path of like giving it a shot, and I, you know, they they just don't know. Like they just don't understand. They think their child is special. Um, They think their child is like the one, Um, and their judgment is just clouded. They don't have the understanding or the the perspective of like being able to see the whole game. They don't know what they're really asking. So I'm not blaming them. Like every every parent wants what's best for their child. I'm not trying to say it's um, these are like evil people. By any stretch of the imagination but there's a lot of really just a lot of really tragic uh situations out there my, my personal opinion is it's not worth the risk to to try it so like uh if you want to argue the other side of the coin you would say well your daughter might be world class say like xyz you'll never know because you didn't push her to find out if she could be like that good and what I'm saying is it's not worth the counterbalance. It's not worth the flip side for me. It's not worth the downside risk. I would much rather preserve my relationship with my child, um, have them feel loved and nurtured and supported, and give them the freedom to explore themselves because the odds of them being world-class in anything are just unbelievably low so I'm not willing to take the the risk even if it means sacrificing potentially their like ultimate potential you know in something whatever whatever that means in air quotes
0: that's a very good point but and I think I've seen that a lot and I think people underestimate how expensive time-consuming soul-consuming sometimes I mean like to, to be a professional tennis player it's not like if you play like a team sport like you have a you have a whole team you're father is most likely not the coach of that team and uh, you have like bunch of friends and you play together tennis you're alone right so you're alone on the court you leave the court as a loser you have a parent waiting for you there who is disappointed there's no other yeah. way to hide the disappointment nobody can do it that well it, it's a, can be a pretty toxic situation right so uh, i i completely agree with your point of view and i think it's pretty refreshingly honest to be as blunt in saying like hey it's most likely not even worth trying right that uh, i think that is uh, it's a very good point and, and also like in, in any you know res- respect uh, like having a parent um parent kid relationship even in and like if you're working together in the same company can be tricky from what i've seen and that's not even tennis related right it's like you parent kid should be parent kid relationship <laughs> in my uh, opinion i think if you can keep it like that and one thing that's really connected to tennis is is like and really to this issue as well it's like the mental side it's such a mental game is it something you think about a lot is it something you work on with players or you work on yourself because i think it's been like mental health is in the spotlight now in the last five years more than ever before uh, for many good reasons but also with tennis it's such a big part of your success uh, on the court uh, is that something you work with in any Wait.
1: Yeah, historically, um, it might be the thing I've spent the most time thinking about, honestly, uh, personally. Um I just post my most recent podcast, uh I think number three hundred eighty nine, uh I think it's called um mental tennis transformation. Kinda chronicles my journey a little bit from uh I mentioned before I played three years of college tennis and I actually ended up walking off my college team my senior year because I had become really miserable um, mentally and emotionally on the tennis court. Um, tennis had gone from being the thing I was most passionate about to the thing that brought me the most pain and frustration in life, and I felt like I had to like walk away from competing and get ready for my coaching career i was about to graduate i was about to get married and um i was just so like day after day just so miserable on the court um that i felt like i had to i had to set down you know the racket as a player and so the last 20 years i've really dedicated a lot of thought and uh time and energy and like reflection and education uh, I've created tons and tons of resources, you know, over the years, I, I've, I've learned a tremendous amount. And I'm now in a place where I have all of that, that big stack of like pressures that I talked about before uh, being on the real tennis uh, court. I'm in a position now where I can, I can it, with a smiling face, like walk out to that court uh, with that big stack of uh, pressures and joy, like every minute of it, still totally get frustrated because I'm human and like I have wants and needs and like expectations. And so I'm, I'm still gonna make mistakes. I'm still going to get frustrated. But the difference now is I'm able to let that frustration, uh, come out and refocus my energy and my, uh, my mind on something positive and productive immediately or, you know, it, as immediately as possible, depending on, uh, what just happened and still perform to the best of my ability, which is never my best, but the best I can do, you know, that day. And I'm in a position now where I can be content, totally like content with that. And even taking an L walk off and find positives and find things I'm grateful for. And I, I had no capacity to do that, uh, before. So, um, I've done a lot of work. Um, I, I mean, I've done, uh, I, I've never quantified it before, but I've done like eight or nine years of therapy, you know, at this point, um, I've made a lot of resources on like courses on the mental game. I've done a lot of my own like work and it's one of my favorite things to work on with, with students because I see the benefit that it has, ranging or stretching like way off the court into the rest of uh, life as well. If you can come face to face with adversity and disappointment and embarrassment and failure and be able to bounce off of it and redirect and refocus to something positive like in day-to-day life, like that's a massively important, uh, valuable tool. And so it's one of my favorite things to focus on with students like in between the technical stuff uh, so yeah, it's a really important uh, topic for me.
0: Yeah, I think also this is the one maybe you can see the biggest results. Like you s- talk also about like the, the, you know, aside from tennis, you know, like in your real, in your personal life, but also like in a, in a pure tennis sense, like you, if you learn to master like how to forget what happened in the previous point or reset, which Novak talks a lot about in some recent uh, content, uh, you feel like, I mean, you will feel better. Like I did like one year of like mental tennis work like, not every day, but generally trying to be improve because I was I was pretty bad on the tennis court before. And I think there's a lot of crazy people on the tennis court. Like, bit, tennis <laughs> yeah. makes you uh, into a psychopath, right? <laughs> it's like, 100%, 100%, it's, I totally agree. It's what I happens. Totally agree. You, you, can meet, you can meet, like, a completely normal person. Uh, this happened to me in this ITF. I played the ITF Senior Tour here in Spain. And, um, and like, some players are really good. Like, they play Futures. They played something. And then now they're, like, 40. So they're playing on that tour. And they go there and you have a chat, you know, you're, you know, more advanced in life, whatever you feel. And then one game in and there's like a huge argument about a line call, which is completely pointless. Yeah. And suddenly the person you thought like, yeah, it seems like a nice guy. He's like, I'm going to punch this guy in the face. <laughs> you know? it's like This is what tennis does to you, I think. So it's so good to try to master what you can control. Right. And when you see someone go off the rails uh, on the other side of the net, it's, like, it's a positive for you because you're not going off the rails and you can use that to win the match probably, right? Tennis is one of those, I, I call it UFC with rackets. You know, people don't, like, it's so competitive as a sport that it's it's almost physically, like, I, I, you know, when you play other sports, I never feel like the same kind of competitive viciousness that I feel when I play a non-prize money tennis match. Mm. Do, do, do you agree with that? Like, the competitive aspect of tennis is a huge strength, but it can also lead to some, uh, yeah, uh, less fortunate behavior.
1: Yeah, I agree, and I think I think it really psychologically stems back to what you pointed out earlier about the challenge of of a child playing a solo sport, where you're li- like literally like on a stage, like you're on a you're on a like a flat like platform. Um, that's like roped off. Like like you said, it's like, that's a great analogy. It's, it's like UFC, um, like you're you're in a cage, uh, with a, like a stage in the middle of it, everybody is like standing around and like looking down on your performance and it's, it's impossible without significant, significant, like personal awareness and effort and work and like reflection to, to put yourself in that, in that space and not go kind of crazy. Um, I yeah, I hundred. I, I used to be right up there, like with the worst of them. My my outbursts were internally like um, focused. Like it was like self anger and like hatred and like shame. Like that was that was my like I didn't I didn't externalize it. It was internal, but it was really really bad. So I I, to- I completely understand like the uh, how triggering um, it can be. And yeah, it's because it's definitely because of the format, because of the unique way that it, it puts people um, under a microscope, and you know you're under a microscope. And I think I don't know that it's like a natural human thing to be able to deal with that. Like we're <laughs> wired to be like communal creatures, you know, to like to like be in like a society together that's like <laughs> uh, nurturing and like uplifting and like supportive and uh when you walk onto the tennis court all of that disappears and you're just alone and you're exposed and so the worst yeah the worst. it brings out the worst uh of people and sometimes the best in people and that's what makes it such a such a great game and, and a big reason why i love it so much like
0: I, I i used to be the same i used to be like horrible negative self-talk which they say generally is more damaging than if someone outside and scream that at you from from afar you know so it's like pretty pretty bad to be <laughs> conducting self talk and now, now you, you and you see that all the time when people are really like they're so upset with just watching i was in curious um, next to his box at stuttgart and he was repeating a 100 million times how much he hated tennis how much he sucked at tennis it was just like all you hear all you heard because you wow. were quite close it was it's like good. this cannot be good <laughs> this this yeah, it, can be something else right and he still won the match, but uh, yeah, he probably didn't feel <laughs> feel good doing so. <laughs> so that that's, that shows tennis, like how, how it is and how easy it is to blame like external factors as well for what's going on inside your head. You know, suddenly the, the, the court is bad, the racket is wrong, uh, your opponent is annoying for whatever reason. He wasn't annoying when you were winning 6-3, but now he's really annoying in the second set. And uh, yep. it's, it's like, um, you know, it's like someone is studying you in a lab, right? There's some alien outside. It's like, let's put these two people on this kind of gladiator <laughs> arena and we see if they, yeah. you know, lose their shit. <laughs> <laughs> Talking to you, I like you're a, you're a wise guy. I, I can really tell that straight away. And also the way you do your videos, you, have, you think about things more deeply than just like the nature of just improving in tennis and stuff. And, uh, and I think that's really nice. And I think that's a lot of like, you can t- always take things out of videos that are not just tennis related, uh, which, which is great. And now I'm going to change
1: the attack completely. Have you watched Breakpoint? <laughs> no. So we, so I'm a terrible example for tennis, uh, fans. Um, I, uh, earlier, I was talking about how like I've kind of optimized my life for for business and for for family, and like ten- my personal tennis like comes after that, um, and tennis other than my own tennis is like way down the list, like after that, and so yeah, <laughs> I very rarely watch tennis. Um, I really I don't keep up with the tour at all. Um, I, I do a little bit, like I I subscribe to some content creators I really love that do tour news. Uh, coffee, shout out to Matt at coffee break tennis is by far the, I wish he would upload more. Um, but in my opinion, he's by far the best tour news, uh, resource, incredibly, uh, entertaining and also very like insightful. So like, I keep up with like the big stuff that's, that's going on, but, um, I don't really watch TV. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty boring, you know, apart from, uh, like family and, uh, in business life. Um, we haven't had Netflix for a while, so So I I haven't, if I had Netflix, I probably would have watched it by now, but we just don't have it. And I I just don't go to the trouble of like, of uh, stealing somebody else's login. So, so I haven't watched it yet, but it sounds like it was really, really well done. And I'm sure someday I'll I'll take the time to watch it.
0: Yeah, it's it's, it's the second season. I would say if you get that time, I'm the same with TV. I don't have really time where I don't take my time to do that, but it, it, the second season was much better than the first one. Like that re- relates more to That's their good. previous productions. They did one on golf, which was very good, and the one on the Formula One, which was the start of it. And the second one, you get closer to everything and it's up, it feels more organic. The first one was more like, do you know the rules of tennis? Uh, which mm-hmm. for us tennis fans, nerds no. whatever you everyone to call us is not so exciting, right? And and that's the thing. So uh, do you have any other hobbies or there's, there's simply no time something else you're doing besides tennis and and family?
1: I've got a lot, uh, a lot of hobbies in the hobby uh, graveyard that I'd love to come back to someday. Um, The only, the only things I do for myself right now um, are uh, occasionally I'll, I'll play tennis. Um, I'd say I average probably once a week um, uh, being on the courts and I, I, I have to stretch. I'm old enough now. You're, I think you're a year younger than me, so I know you know what I'm talking about. I, I'm old enough now that if I don't yeah. <laughs> do something very routinely to take care of my body, then I just don't enjoy. I just can't enjoy it the way I used to because I'll just be limited. So um, I try to do yoga. I try to do it every morning, but I probably average like four or five times a week in the morning. And I've recently, in the last year, I've picked up road cycling as a way to cross train. And I've been very surprised at how much I, I've, I've really started enjoying, uh, road cycling a lot, um, which has really surprised me. So that's how I kind of keep my body, um, in condition. Uh, so those are like my hobbies right now. Uh, <laughs> things that like support the other ways that I want to spend my time. Um, I don't do anything on the side that's like extra that I do it just cause I enjoy it and it's maybe not healthy. Um, but it just kind of feels like the, the phase of life that I'm in right now. But in the past, um, I was in a golf for a while. I love golf. I was in car racing for a while. Um, I love cars. I, I don't have time for those things anymore. Um, I was in photog- into photography and like, um, filmmaking, uh, still photography and filmmaking for a while. Again, like, j- I just don't have time for that. Um, so in the past, those have been like pa- side, like passions of mine and in the future, I'll, I'll probably do those things again.
0: Yeah, and I think with, with age as well, like, you know, with a family, you have to prioritize time. And I, also, you realize that even if you have the time, prioritizing it towards things that generate some, you know, result of some kind, whether it's physical, mental, or something. Yeah. Like, for me, playing video games is unthinkable. Like, it's not something I, I was never really that interested, <laughs> but I have friends that are... There are you know, and I'm like for me, that would be such a waste of of my time that I would just feel stupid doing it, you know, but then you're doing the yoga, which is which is great, and I, I like you you were at similar age if I don't do some kind of warm up, I play tennis let's say five times a week at least, um, if I don't do some kind of warm up I'm gonna suffer in some way or or just risk some stupid injury or, or just a little bit of, of pain, so I, every day I have to do something you know. And it's funny with cycling i guess that's also like entertaining in a way although it's you know it's strenuous and uh, but it also gives you time to be out and think because it's a uh, when you play tennis you can't think you have to focus on tennis you can't think about anything else you're not gonna hit the ball right so ah. i see more of an interest in these types of activities that you can combine also with like you know taking walks road cycling i that's that's a growing sport for sure especially in europe i see it everywhere especially in spain mm. for sure
1: yeah i love it because it, yeah it is reflective but it's like very internal the way I do it is the way I do most things. Um, I put on a heart rate monitor. Uh, I've got my I've got my phone uh, right there, like facing me, so I can I can track like my route and where I'm going, and track my my speed and my heart rate um, in real time. And and then I just like go as hard as I can, <laughs> and uh, until I'm until I'm done. And so I don't do long rides. Like I, I'm not out doing two hour, three hour rides. Um, my cap is like an hour and I'm trying to like maximize my heart rate for the like the entire like 60 minutes and then I and then I get home and I'm done and I like push myself hard and it's it's great for my body it definitely it helps me clear my mind um, but I am mostly like focused on like my physiology while I'm doing it Um, it's zero impact like on the body so I feel like I'm able to maintain my my um, my fitness without like wearing on my joints, which is such a premium, you know, if I can figure out that combination, swimming's really the only, or I guess rowing as well. Swimming and rowing and cycling are really the only things that you can kind of mimic the intensity and like the, the, f- the full body like, um, requirements of tennis, but without just, you know, taking like clicks off the odometer every single time that you pound, uh, on the ground. Those are all the reasons why i love i love cycling and I, i'm enjoying it more and more
0: yeah you, yeah, you see uh, yeah, some some tennis 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 players go to go. like um triathlon like i have several friends like magnus norman i, I don't know that well but but he's a, well, a famous example like the coach of stan uh, but also other friends who used to play like pro and then they go to triathlon right because they they need that massive endorphin rush of extreme um you know endurance and and physical exertion and I, I think that, that kind of sh- shines the light on how physical tennis is, because people don't realize if you don't play tennis, if you don't yeah. like, watch tennis really up close live, for example, you don't know how much you, know, you put no. in your body, how much you have to really be strong and fast and, and also have the reaction speed of a tiger to just play tennis on, on a decent level, I would say. So uh, is that something you, you see with your students, for example, if you have somewhat older students or... Are they also like in tune with that? Their body needs to uh, stay in tune.
1: No, to be honest, I feel I feel like most, and this is just human nature. I think I, I think most people that I work with only really pay attention closely when they when they have to, and that that's how we all operate, right? For the, for the most part, like once something really starts hurting to the point where it gets in the way of what you want to do, that's when it's like, okay, I gotta like pay attention to this. But I think your average tennis player, which is, you know, very like the sweet spot of like the people that I'm working with, uh, your average tennis player doesn't do much off the court. And instead, they view tennis as like that's their exercise. And I think mm-hmm. you can get away with that pretty well until about our age, like, I, at least in my experience and what I've seen like around me uh, until you hit your 40s, you can get away with that. But if you're going to go into your 50s, 60s, and play three, four times a week and not do something supplementary off the court, it's it's just not going to go – you're not going to last very long because tennis does take a lot out of the body. It's not additive. Like it – in a certain sense, it is. Like it's better than sitting on the couch and watching Netflix and eating Doritos. Um, so it's like better than doing nothing. But it will take out of your system. It will – provide, you know, impact and it will provide stress and strain and repetitive. I mean, you think about like a tennis ball colliding uh, with your racket that's connected to your body again and again and again. Some, unless you're incredibly efficient and fluid and smooth, something has to give eventually. And same thing with your knees, same thing with your hips. Um, so I, I'm trying to take it seriously. I'm, I'm playing the long game. Like I want to be a killer, like 85s national player. <laughs> um that's like what i'm that's what i'm like shooting for i don't have the talent to have been like a great junior player or a great college player or a great like open level you know men's player but watch out in like 40 years i'm gonna be i'll be dominating the uh the national that's what i'm shooting for That's the national scene
0: <laughs> i like that i like playing the long game i think that makes sense uh, no, my father is uh, completely tennis nerding out in uh, recent 10 years, so my stepfather, but uh, we're super close. But he's he's been... He replaced both knees, and now he's running like a, a boy again, pretty much. So And wow, he plays perfect. tennis as much as I do. Or, I mean, he would play every day if he could, you know. But uh, it, So he, he's going for also like 85. <laughs> so we'll see. He's 65 now, so he has like 20 years to improve a lot. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. a boy. Uh, no, I, love, but, I love that attitude. Yeah, you, you kind of like that people anyone who shows like a, a dedication passion to improve in whatever really in life uh, especially as an older age i think is think even more impressive it's, it's just like heartwarming i think that's such a thing totally agree uh, i've been taking a lot of your time on the 4th of july we've had a huge lag i don't know what's up with my internet i never had any problems before but yesterday was also weird with with rick or two days ago um, so, uh, yeah, I'm sorry about the, the lagging issue. Uh probably on my end apparently, but, but we've managed it pretty well because it's not that easy to, uh, to converse fluid, like in a fluid way when there's like, you know, it's like you're on this space station and I'm here down on earth and we're trying to <laughs> find like a common yep. ground to, <laughs> to hear each other.
1: No, you did, you did really well. Um, you, there's a, you, you, you wouldn't know this unless you've like studied it or you've done it yourself. Um, but there's a, there's a whole skill set to, uh, to interviewing. Um, I can tell, you know, you know, you've been in media and you've, you've worked on it and you've been intentional and, and mindful about it. Uh, you did a, you did a really fantastic job. Same with all the rest of your, your content. I, I love watching your stuff. Um, really a pleasure talking to you today and I, hopefully your audience gets some value out of it and they, they enjoy it. Yeah, when it's, when it's from you, I'm sure they will get value
0: out of it. And I, I really got value out of it myself. Uh, so if you want to check out Ian's stuff, if you haven't already, essentialtennis.com. And there's the Essential Tennis YouTube channel, Real Tennis, and a bunch of channels. There's Instagram and all that stuff. But you'll find it through Essential Tennis. He's also written a book, which I've read, which is great, called Essential Tennis. So we're making it easy for you guys to, to find him out there in the, in the ether. Uh, so big thanks and happy 4th of July, Ian. And I hope to talk to you again with less lag.
1: Thank you, Jonas. It was a pleasure. I'm I'm happy to uh, have another conversation anytime. You're doing a fantastic job. Keep up the good work with your content, and uh, hopefully, people watching enjoyed our talk. Thanks a lot.